0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and first of all, please stop whatever you're doing right now and go and rate our show wherever you listen to it. We are now streaming on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcast, and Stitcher. All you have to do is hit the little star button and pick whatever number of stars you feel is appropriate. Be honest, I don't care. Five stars, six, seven, doesn't matter to me. I'm just going to wait while you pause it and go ahead and do that. Okay, welcome back, and on with the show. Today, I am joined by Dr. Christian Niemitz. Christian received his PhD in political economy from King's College in London. He is a regular contributor to various journals in the UK and Germany and is a senior research fellow at the Institute of Economic Affairs, as well as the author of several books, including the title we're discussing today, Socialism, The Failed Idea That Never Dies. This is my conversation with Christian Niemitz. Christian, can you say, first of all, am I saying your name correctly?
1: Yes, perfect.
0: Awesome. Can you say a little bit about what your book is about in a broad overview?
1: It's about the return of socialism as a mainstream ideology. Because, as you know, for a long time, uh, it was a common perception that socialism sort of ended with the fall of the Berlin Wall. And that since then, uh, it's been a preserve of uh, fringe groups and cranks. Uh, But then um, around 2015, there was a massive revival going on. You had uh, political movements, political candidates in a number of Western countries that um, were self-described socialists and um, having quite a lot of success especially among young people, you had a return of socialism as a, well, repackaged as a hip and trendy youth movement. You had mass movements suddenly around us with new socialist publications uh, springing up all over the place. And um, I just wanted to address the issue, uh, set out in, uh, in more detail what's actually wrong With socialism, because I did notice at the time that a lot of people on my side of the argument, by which I mean uh, free marketeers, liberals in the European sense, liberal in the sense of classical liberal slash libertarian, didn't really know how to react to this uh, socialism revival, because they had just forgotten how to argue properly with socialist ideas. Uh, here in Britain, if uh, my predecessors at uh, the Institute of People who were there in the 60s, maybe 70s, they would have known how to do that, because then socialism was a major force. You had um, mainstream political movements that wanted to, that actively promoted a socialist economy. Uh, it's just that um, after, the, well, certainly after the fall of the Berlin world, there was a perception that you don't have to do that anymore. People had forgotten how to uh, argue with socialists, it was just presumed something obvious. Um, it's uh, socialism has failed, that's all you have to know about it. And then you had these people uh, coming up and saying, ah, well, no it's not that socialism has failed it has just not been properly tried and i wanted to address that argument uh, once and for all why uh, firstly uh, on the theoretical level there are good reasons why socialism has always failed it's not that it's just been badly done but also i wanted to show that um, that that is that claim it wasn't real socialism Real socialism has never been tried. I want to show that that is really just an excuse, Uh, even if the people making that excuse aren't necessarily aware of it. um, But what I'm showing is that uh, socialists have historically only made that claim once a socialist regime was already discredited, once uh, it had become an embarrassment. Uh, most recent example, of, um, we saw this in real time a couple of years ago with, uh, with Venezuela. Um, used to be massively popular among Western intellectuals from about 2005 to 2013, 14, And then when their economy collapsed and you had a massive humanitarian crisis, Suddenly, you did see socialists saying, ah, well, but it was never truly socialism. And I said, hang on, that's not what you said two or three years ago. I can remember articles from you uh, saying Venezuela is real socialism and it's fantastic. And I just went through several historic examples. I found out that this uh, this Venezuela episode was not the first time that this happened. This happened pretty much with every socialist regime. Uh, Soviet Union, Maoist is China, um, North Korea even. Albania, Cambodia, under the Khmer Rouge, you name it, everywhere, every time there was a socialist uh, regime somewhere in the world, uh, you had Western intellectuals first praising it to disguise, saying, this is real socialism, this is the real thing, you see, it works. And then, in hindsight, when once the regime is uh, discredited, then they suddenly roll back and said, oh no, that was never socialism, you just don't understand socialism. You described after the fall of the Berlin
0: Wall that people didn't think they needed to argue against socialism anymore. Yes. But it seems like from reading your book, it seems like the gap between the fall of the Berlin Wall and and I guess the popularity of Venezuela fits pretty neatly in with the rest of the pattern you describe. I mean there's always the decline of popularity of some regime and and then maybe some time elapses. And so maybe we were just in a in a lull. There just wasn't any good examples around. And for those of us who lived through it, we maybe assume because the end of the Cold War that we didn't have to live through it, but it was from, from the perspective of intellectuals, it was just a dearth
1: of examples to be praised. Yes, there was that. There was, uh, of course, the impression that, uh, I mean, even though at, at around that time, uh, late 80s, uh, most Western intellectuals had successfully distanced themselves from Eastern Bloc socialism, uh, but nonetheless, it still had a reputational effect. If you have so many regimes uh, of that persuasion collapsing all at once, yeah, exactly. Then, then you can say, "Oh no, my kind of socialism is different." But that just rings a bit hollow. If, um, if, if there are so many examples of it failing, it would be a bit like. Let's say you had uh, a drug, some some uh, medicine that causes horrible side effects uh, among thousands of people, and you come up and say, "Ah, oh, well, but they just um, they just got the dosage wrong, or they just took it in the wrong way. The drug is actually perfectly safe." Well, you can say that a generation later, maybe when nobody actively remembers. Uh, uh, the, the the horror stories uh, around that drug. But if it has just happened, uh, if it's still in the news regularly, then uh, that claim will just sound a bit hollow. And that was what, what happened in in the 90s. So that there were always people saying um, socialism has just not been properly tried. That it's, not, it's not that it ever completely went away. It was just in the nineties, in the early two thousands. It was not part of the mainstream, and even with the during the Venezuela wave, it was not exactly um, a mass movement. It was still something that was limited to students, intellectuals. But it's not that you had um, a phenomenon like, let's say, the the wave of popularity or, uh, in, in the US, the, the Bernie Sanders movement. Here in Britain, the Corbyn movement, these were really mass movements. This wasn't just um, a socialist reading group at some university, but here we have festivals where people were actively chanting the the name of the dear leader, Uh, proper mass movements, including people who would otherwise not consider themselves maybe very political. and, uh, And there, you, you can say we were back to the way it was in, in the 60s where you had uh, the student uh, protesters of the time where a lot of them just would have described themselves as Marxists of one variety or another. Can you say something about how
0: you are defining socialism in your book because this is not this is not like a polemical screed where you're accusing any government with high taxes in a welfare state of being socialist um, just to make that clear when i first heard was hearing about this book i thought it i thought it might be kind of a polemic and then i started reading it and i was like oh this is a well-researched academic book and and very sober in tone um and you you know you distinguish between like nordic social democracies and socialist countries. Can you say a little bit about that?
1: Yes, uh, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, well, first of all, the the Nordic uh, countries, uh, Sweden, Denmark, Finland, uh, they are clearly capitalist economies. Uh, The vast, vast majority of companies in those countries are privately owned, um, and the economies are governed by coordinated by market prices, Uh, there is no government planning bureau or anything of that, so they are as capitalist as the United States or Britain. Uh, It's just that they have higher taxes and very generous welfare states. Um, That's not socialism and the, let's say, the more um, outspoken members of this new socialist movement, uh, they also see it that way. there are the people who the, the the members of this millennial socialist movement who write books um record podcasts some of them say very explicitly Denmark, Sweden that's not what we want they actively distance themselves from that so um i'm simply defining socialism in the same way in which the current socialists are defining it i'm not coming up with uh, some strawman definition I, I stick to the the classic, conventional definition for most of its history, socialism, used to mean uh, collective ownership of the of the means of production, and this idea that somehow social democracies, countries with um, high taxes, generous welfare states, that that's somehow socialist, that's uh, a modern day linguistic confusion. Um that's something that I only came across when I started writing that book. That I, I did come across people who went when I asked them, okay, where where is your favorite example of socialism? That somebody would say, Well, Sweden or, or Denmark. I thought, what? Uh, it's um it's it's a relatively new thing. Now I'm not a social democrat. Myself, I have my criticisms of of uh, of economic models like in Denmark or Sweden. I'm just saying that's not what I what I do in this book. For the purposes of this book, it doesn't matter whether you are a libertarian free marketeer or whether you are a Nordic type social democrat. Um, as long as you are broadly in favor of the market economy, I think you should uh, you will probably agree with 99 uh, percent of that book. What well, I'm hoping, at least. I mean, I've yeah. had some some favourable reviews from from social democrats who um, who recognise that quite clearly. Who are saying this is not simply an an attempt to say all lefties are are bad or all lefties are somehow socialists. I, I make quite clear, uh, if you, if you are a Nordic type social democrat, um, I'm not talking about you. Can you?
0: Steal man, the claim that true socialism hasn't been tried. You you kind of rip that argument to shreds in the book. But what do you think is the most charitable case for
1: that claim? Well, it's hard to to steal man. Um, I think the, the versions of it that we see are actually as as good as it gets. The idea is that what Marx and Engels originally wanted. When they talked about socialism or or communism, they used them more or less synonymously, was a democratically planned economy. So they did not want a technocratic elite in charge. They did not want a party elite in charge. Uh, They wanted a grassroots democracy where workers get together in factories, in assemblies, and collectively plan their economy. Uh, That was always the idea. But that, of course, never happened. If you look at actual uh, examples of socialist economies, it was never anything like that. It was never democratic. It was either fr- from early on, quite dictatorial and technocratic, or at least it descended into that over time. So Venezuela, uh, uh, since I mentioned that example, that was initially a democracy. Chavez was uh, re-elected several times and won uh, referendums as well. So clearly, initially, a perfectly legitimate uh, democratic government. That wasn't the issue. It just descended into uh, authoritarianism over time. And, and not even just when... the
0: democratic government, but early. you talk about how early on in Venezuela's experiments with socialism, it sounds like it was a lot of essentially state-supported and subsidized workers' cooperatives that eventually Chavez was like, well, these are just capitalist organizations run by workers. This is no good. Yes.
1: Yes. Um, that's that's the thing they did try uh chavez initially distanced himself from all the 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 earlier examples and Mm -hmm. said uh, my kind of socialism will be nothing like what, what you probably imagine uh we're doing socialism of the 21st century it will be completely different he called the soviet union a perversion of socialism so very much like millennial socialists today like you're average Bernie bro or Corbynista uh, would argue today. So that's always been the idea so that socialism means a democratically run economy. It never turned out that way. Socialists, uh, modern day socialist, millennial socialists conclude from that, that it just hasn't been properly tried, that uh, if somebody talks about a democratically run economy and then produces a horrible technocratic dictatorship, um, their conclusion is, well, those people cannot have been honest in their intentions. They may have promised one thing, they may have used that democratic rhetoric, but they cannot have have meant it really. Whereas I would say, no, most of those people genuinely did mean it uh, when they said, we want to uh, create a democratically run economy. It's just that they realized, um, once they were in power, that that cannot be done, that there is no mechanism uh, for... If you take a country like like Britain, a population of 65 million people, how are they supposed to run their economy collectively, democratically? How is that supposed to work? Nobody has ever come up with a mechanism of, uh, of, of how you could do that. Of course, you, you can have a parliament um, just democratically elected and that parliament i guess can then appoint people to a to a socialist planning board or whatever but so then it would be something that you could describe as democratic but that would then just be like let's say the a central bank uh, nowadays uh the federal reserve bank nobody would say that the fed is a democratically run organization um so you can have democratic socialism in, in that sense that you have a democratically elected government uh in place and that they appoint um a, a planning board or, or state managers uh, or whatever but that would still be an extremely technocratic solution and I have yet to see any socialists explain to me how how you can run an economy democratically because we can see already even with the scope that that uh, modern governments have today that in a lot of areas public engagement is just very low here in britain we have a, a national health service uh, as you know we could in principle uh, it is possible for people to get involved at the at the local level and have a bit of a say about how that's run but in practice almost nobody does that and that's that's because but well, these these are questions that are inherently uh, very technical ultimately it's not something that you can do with mass participation U- ultimately this uh, you you will you will end up with experts running those uh, those parts of the economy it just cannot realistically be done in a democratic way
0: i think you're touching on it right now but you talk about how it's not just an accident or perversion of personalities or corruption that these socialist experiments turn quite authoritarian there's some underlying structural reason for it what do you think that reason is
1: uh, socialist regimes are not just oppressive. What's important to note is that they are all oppressive in similar ways. So it's not randomly. It's not that they say uh, on Mondays you're not allowed to eat potatoes. So It's, it's not that they come up with random uh, rules just to make life difficult. Uh, it always happens in in predictable ways, and that is uh, related to um, the nature of a planned economy. When you plan an economy, the planning board, the the central authority, must have the power to uh, direct the factors of production. And of course, the main factor of production is uh, is labor. So the reason why Stalin. Um, relocated huge groups of the population and that he uprooted population groups saying okay you have to move over there uh, somewhere in the wilderness and if loads of you starve in the process I don't care. there, you could say, okay, that that was a mix. The, the, the fact that it was done in this brutal way, that was because Stalin was a was a, a psychopath, and uh, with a, a nicer Stalin, uh, it might not have been quite so catastrophic. But the fact that there was uh, that the state had this power to move people around in this way and not allow free movement. Uh, free choice of of jobs, of where you want to live. The fact that those freedoms didn't exist—that was systematic. That's uh, and that's something that didn't improve much after Stalin's death either. That's just how a planned economy um, is supposed to work, and that's the reason why, uh, even in the Soviet Union, um, I looked a bit at their migration policies and um, or the. Uh, internal migration policies you had. After the Russian Revolution, it was still possible to move around in Russia uh, freely. So they banned emigration from the country quite early on. But uh, for a couple of years, you were still allowed to move between cities. You could have moved from uh, Leningrad to Moscow. Uh, They stopped that when they rolled out the first five-year plan. And that's not a coincidence because you have state-planned industries suddenly, state-planned housing, um, so, in order for that to work, to to match workers to factories to houses, you need the power to say you live here and you can't go away. And the same thing then happened again uh, later after the Chinese Revolution that uh, they also brought in a uh, system of of internal passports, um, meaning that you you can't freely move within the country just because you you want to. Something like that uh, existed in East Germany as well. It wasn't. It, it wasn't literally internal passports you could, you could travel but um moving was just very difficult mostly because you you would have needed somewhere to stay and uh, that would have been state housing so it's it's all allocated by the state so this uh, centralization of power that's uh, inevitable under under socialism i'd say even if we had a perfectly democratic socialist government it would still be authoritarian because even democracies can be authoritarian you can you can have a, a tyrannical majority you can have a, a a government that's that's very bossy even if it is backed by 50% plus 1 of the population the examples
0: you gave of the internal passports and also restrictions on emigration that was eye opening. I had always, without giving it too much thought, just assumed it was more an issue of power of authoritarian states not wanting to lose their population base or something like that and or wanting to keep tabs on people for for reasons of like surveillance or something like that. But the it makes more sense, I think, it, on the much more mundane economic level of No, you as a person are a factor of production. You are you are Mm -hmm. a laborer. And I've written a very detailed plan about where you're supposed to be. And if you go moving to Belgium, that's going to screw everything up. So you're staying right where you are. I hadn't really considered that. And it makes a lot of sense. And especially like you mentioned the pattern like these. This is not something that happened just in the Soviet Union. This is a pattern in all or nearly all of the countries you go over.
1: That's exactly right. Uh, because sometimes that's where uh, socialist regimes differ from more conventional types of dictatorships. Uh, because sometimes dictators are quite keen on emigration because it means uh, opponents. It's it's an easy way to get rid of opponents. Of the, the people
0: likely to emigrate are the people probably not too happy with your regime. So
1: great, exactly, get yes. out of here. Yes, yes. Uh, and that existed to a very tiny extent uh, in in socialist. Uh, countries as well east germany sometimes exiled people uh artists where they knew okay this person uh, this 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 person is a troublemaker they are against us and losing them wasn't that big a deal for them because uh, it, it was smaller numbers and uh, if they're artists then nice to have but uh it's it's not like losing lots of people in who lots of engineers or, or doctors but yes it was um that was exactly the the pattern that um it was always about preserving your labor force. And that's also why uh, it's not a coincidence that, uh, that East Germany was more restrictive than even some of its neighbors. That's because, of course, an East German uh, had it much easier to emigrate to a capitalist alternative, which was West Germany, They spoke the same language, they had a German passport where somebody from, let's say, Yugoslavia would not have been automatically accepted in, in West Germany. So uh, since it was much easier for East Germans to leave, that's why the regime also had to be more draconian. Uh, but And it really was uh, driven by, um, by economic considerations. They didn't have this uh, immigration restriction right from the start in the beginning. And for a couple of years, you could freely move from East to West Germany. It's just that they lost... Uh, hundreds of thousands of people uh, in that way every year and that messed up their five-year plans. Then if you suddenly have uh, thousands of people in a particular sector leaving and and your five-year plan is based on the population numbers that you had at the time the, the plan was drafted, well, then you have a problem because then your plan was totally out of date and you can't then say, uh, okay let's now now we need to draft a, a completely new plan um that just messes everything up and that's why they had to go more and more restrictive uh, they they tried milder measures first they tried to appeal to a sense of socialist patriotism tried to tell people Yes, you can go over there, they have more consumer goods, but life is not all about that. And aren't you proud of the fact that we are building um, the socialist paradise here? And but it's just that that um, appealed to very few people, and so, those damn saboteurs have to emigrate. And yeah, it's and and that's another thing that uh, that's also very typical of socialist regimes. So when something goes wrong economically, you have to find imaginary saboteurs, someone to blame. Because You mentioned that the system.
0: East Germany had more restrictive emigration or internal passport rules, or maybe specifically emigration rules than even some of their neighbors because of the ease with which East Germans could go to West Germany and find a relatively similar cultural and linguistic society. Does that pattern hold for North Korea for a similar reason that they, the opportunity to migrate to South Korea makes it more tempting and necessary for them to really clamp down
1: more so than even China, for instance. Yes, absolutely. That would be the reason why North Korea is much more restrictive than, say, Cuba. Cuba does well. Okay, they, they even they had a migration ban for most of the time, but they they have relaxed that quite a bit in recent years. So there, you can technically emigrate. It's just and it's it's just that uh, a Cuban. Um, I don't know the, the exact rules there, but I would imagine that if, if a Cuban uh, migrates to Florida, they would not have an automatic right to uh, to live and work there. Well, and, and there is the language barrier, even though Florida has a, a, a huge Hispanic population. But yeah, you are then in a, in, in a country where where the official language is, is English, and which you might not be fluent in. So there is um, they can therefore afford to be a bit less extreme in their restrictions um north korea of course can't uh, can't do that and even with the draconian restrictions that they have uh, lots of people still try to escape Uh, that's something that we don't know the details uh, about but if uh, if they ever get a reunification and those records will be released um, i'm I'm sure quite a lot of uh, horror stories will will emerge then nowadays you could say North and South Korea are also, in cultural terms, uh, further apart than East and West Germany uh, ever were. Um, so even if they if they liberalised it a little bit, if they allowed some loopholes, it could be that uh, that modern day North Koreans would just have trouble fitting in in South Korea. It would be they might think, okay, these people speak the same language and, and we look the same. But nonetheless, if you had uh, um, such big differences for such a long time, um, I would imagine that it feels like a foreign country to them. I mean, even um, even between East and West Germany, there, there were there were notable differences. Hard to exactly put it into words, but I mean, I moved to Eastern Germany twelve years after reunification, and uh, you were born still, in West Germany. Yes, I'm West German. I moved to uh, to East Berlin in 2001. It still felt in in a lot of ways like a, like a different country, but of course not in the sense that that would have prevented migration. So that's why uh, as soon as they, I mean, just before the fall of the Berlin Wall, a couple of months before, there was the opening of the border fence uh, between Austria and Hungary. And uh, they just opened it Briefly, there was a, a sort of festival um, in in the border area, and they had then thousands of East Germans who travelled to Hungary and escaped to Austria in that way. So even though they had uh, the 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 border had been closed for uh, for decades at the time, as soon as they opened it up a little bit, thousands of people escaped. So that just showed you: uh, as soon as you give give them the tiniest loophole, they will all run away.
0: Yeah. Can you talk about the pattern of Western intellectuals that you go through? The honeymoon, I I forget the exact details, but you talk about a consistent pattern that Western intellectuals go through with the new sexy, exciting socialist country that then turns ugly.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what happens. That uh, after a socialist revolution, you often get a a bit of romanticism around it. Uh, You have a new regime in, in place and they use kind of language that appeals to Western intellectuals, often the policies to go with it as well, so it's usually not just empty rhetoric. And therefore, socialist regimes are always very popular in their early days. You always get these waves uh, of Western pilgrims, who sometimes literal pilgrims who, who actually physically travel there. Sometimes people just romanticize it from afar. Often you have people traveling there and then coming back and saying, this is brilliant, this is the future. Uh, I've seen it. It works. This happened in the Soviet Union in the 30s. There were thousands of Western intellectuals, uh, by, by which I mean academics, uh, writers, artists, people from, from the education sector, media sector, so intellectuals, uh, broadly defined, uh, who who traveled there and who came back. Uh, saying this is this is brilliant, and who who were full of enthusiasm, and you, and you had lots of you can uh, very easily find quotes from fairly prominent figures at the time, who were absolutely in awe uh, of uh, who were fawning over Stalinist Russia. Uh, this lasted for about a decade. There was uh, it, it was even called the Red Decade uh, at, the, at the time. There was uh, a former. Uh, what was he exactly he was some correspondent in moscow some um some american journalist uh, who later then became a, a a critic of the soviet union but he he felt that he was ostracized by his fellow intellectuals for that and uh, i'm guessing that made him an even more of an anti-communist uh, but he wrote about uh, this pattern among many other people uh, uh, about how in, in the 30s it was just if you wanted to be part of polite society. If you wanted to be considered an intellectual, you just had to be pro-Soviet. That was just the the fashionable, intellectual, um, the highbrow opinion at the time. And it was only then after the Second World War, when with the beginning of the Cold War, suddenly the Soviet Union was an enemy and uh, suddenly it was no longer. Um, If you wanted to promote socialist ideas in the West, Uh, it would be a bad idea to hold up the Soviet Union, because people would then say, wait, uh, the Soviet Union is, first of all, it's an enemy. And secondly, it became more widely known in the West uh, that uh, that life in the Soviet Union wasn't pretty, something which in the 30s wasn't universally known, or there was plausible deniability still. And then you get backtracking, then you get um, a period during which intellectuals uh, just fall silent, stop talking about that example. And after a while, you have you've you have a new generation of socialists that have grown up. They have no memory of that period when that regime was romanticized. And they will just say, Oh, that's that's not socialism. That's got nothing to do with us. And then they'll say that that was just not real socialism. And the fact that you even bring this up just shows that you don't understand socialism. You can find this pattern repeatedly, uh, started with the Soviet Union in the in the 30s. But then if you ask anyone who went to a university in a Western country in the late 60s, early 70s, they will tell you that in their day, it was it was in vogue to be a Maoist. Uh, students were using Maoist fashion. Cuba at the same time was, was very much in vogue. Uh, Vietnam, of course, North Vietnam at the time. So you had these waves, which later all became not real socialism allegedly. Then you had smaller waves in the, in the 70s around North Korea. There was a smaller Albania fan club and a Cambodia fan club. And the, Noam Chomsky was one of those people who um, didn't Literally idolise the Khmer Rouge, but he attacked all their Western critics. So every time somebody said there's a genocide going on in Cambodia and uh, this is a horrible regime, he attacked those people, saying uh, this is all just capitalist propaganda. This is, this is a shoddy uh, propaganda. Um, you're all third-rate hacks. And um, yeah, he, he never quite said. Paul Pot is brilliant, but uh, he attacked every one of his critics. And I would say, if, if that's what you do, if you have a go at all the critics of a regime, you have, in effect, taken the side of that regime, even if you never literally say, I am pro-regime. Um, then in the 80s, uh, Nicaragua was the, uh, the, the big showcase uh, of democratic socialism, supposedly. And then there was a gap in, in the 90s and, uh, and early 2000s. And then Venezuela was just the most recent example.
0: What do you think is the best candidate for the next example? Is there is there a current bubbling revolutionary country that you're aware
1: of attracting some attention? It always happens in unpredictable ways. It's usually Venezuela was, for me, it wasn't even on the map before you had this outpouring of support among socialist intellectuals for it. I think before then, I would not even have been able to locate that country on a map. But suddenly... The reason why I was then was that uh, I was an undergraduate at the time and suddenly uh, there were Venezuela flags everywhere and, uh, and events where they invited speakers from there or you had people talking about how how wonderful this all was. Uh, so you can't predict that. When the book came out, there was a serious possibility that that could have been written. At the time, Corbyn was still leading in, in the polls and he had just one and a half years before it came out he had almost won an election he got 40% in a vote and um was still going from strength to strength there was this massive youth movement uh, around him and just this this uh, huge enthusiasm that i had never seen that so much enthusiasm for a politician and a political movement so i mean i i remember the obama mania that that was the thing when he was first elected uh, 2008 but um, even that was nothing uh, like on, on the same scale as, uh, or not that intensity uh, as we had with the, with the Corbyn movement. But where, yeah, that's, that's now over. Uh, well, not over, but it's now not at the front line of, of day-to-day politics anymore. Where the next one will be, I have no idea.
0: This might be a little bit outside of the scope of your book, but I was curious if you think that what you've documented is a part of a broader pattern. I know you 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 mentioned Paul Hollander's work in your book and and he goes a little bit more, I think, into and you do as well into uh, Western intellectual praise for right wing dictatorships. As you know, fascism was very fashionable for a time period before again, before they were enemies of the West you know, places with charismatic leaders and revolutionary ideologies that seem to break with with tradition, whether they be right or left wing. Now, they fascism was shorter lived historically, so you don't probably have many defenders of that. But even and even historical examples like I am sure, I think that there were a lot of early defenses of the French Revolution, you know, the uh, the Committee of Safety or whatever it was called before it was apparent how many people were getting their heads chopped off and Killed in the streets. Um, do you think this is part of a broader historical pattern that's that's more not just limited to, to socialist
1: countries? It could well be that uh, that the French Revolution is actually the first example of it. Uh, I've read accounts of that as well. That that uh, a lot of British intellectuals um, loved it at the time. I'd say the socialist ones are just more sustained. Uh, it lasts longer. It can be over a decade if you were somebody who praised a fascist regime once, then at least you would suffer some reputational damage. Whereas with the socialist ones, that never happened. Um, I'm not aware of, of anyone who lost credibility because of their former support for a socialist regime. These people just move on and act as if that never happened. You also get this idea that somehow the idea itself is is flawless and and pure <laughs> and um it, it was only the bad implementation that is to blame and fortunately nobody would say that about fascism i mean if somebody came up and said oh well uh, fascism has just not been properly tried that person would immediately be uh well disappear from from public life that's there's, not there's real no fascism <laughs> real imperialism <laughs> yeah. has never been tried christian yeah well but the, the mere fact how uh how how absurd it sounds even if you, if you say it ironically that already shows you uh, the difference between the two are there any examples
0: that you can think of of countries that don't fit in i'm just trying to think of if there are if there are non-socialist uh examples of where singapore as a free but like somewhat authoritarian country that had an explosive growth that was very inspiring, like did that inspire a lot of intellectuals to all of a sudden be fawning over it? I would think in a way that they wouldn't have to feel ashamed about because it really did achieve a lot. But it doesn't. It doesn't seem like it. In, it it inspires the same kind of uh,
1: the same kind of praise. No, it doesn't. You would you would get some economists um, who would be impressed by the growth rates and. Um, maybe write something about that look at the causes of that but that would be quite niche it's not that you would get mass movements around that and uh, and you you wouldn't get singapore fan clubs you would never see let's say a, a singapore solidarity campaign at a university in the way that we absolutely have cuba solidarity campaigns still exist uh venezuela solidarity campaigns well they've gone down a bit in popularity and membership numbers but they also still exist. And uh, no, it's uh, in 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 countries that uh, that have big achievements, but that have them for the wrong reason. Um wrong reason from from the perspective of a conventional Western intellectual, um, that would just not be very inspiring. It might attract some acknowledgement. You might say, okay, yes, these numbers look pretty good, they must be doing something right. Um, but It doesn't go beyond that. It would not be considered something inspiring. You would say, okay, they're they're doing something right. The economic numbers look okay. But you wouldn't say, this is a model for a new society. You wouldn't get any of this uh, romantic rhetoric that you get uh, around socialist examples. And that's a a good thing. I mean, I, I, I don't think we should do what socialist intellectuals are, are doing just in reverse. We, we shouldn't romanticize other places. We should say, okay, Hong Kong, uh, Singapore, they've clearly done very well uh, economically. There's, there's, there's lessons to be learned from them, but we shouldn't romanticize those places.
0: You talk about two examples of all of the countries you go through that don't fit neatly into the pattern you describe, East Germany and Cuba. Can you say a little bit about that and why you think they don't fit into the pattern?
1: In the case of Cuba, what I'm saying is that the the conventional pattern is that you first have this this honeymoon period of euphoria and then a cooling down period where it gets a bit more confused and, say, intellectuals may still defend it, but in a more defensive way, um, coming up with excuses rather than just saying how brilliant it is. And then you always get this period in the end where an example is just written off as, not real socialism, and then it's uh, it's considered a straw man or bad form to even mention it. If you nowadays, if you mention Venezuela in any uh, in the presence of a socialist, they will all roll their eyes and say, oh, Venezuela again." Um, it, they, they will they will act as if it was the, the stupidest thing they've they've ever heard. Socialist regimes always end up in that place normally, uh, where it's always, oh, good, he said the Soviet Union, can you imagine, so stupid, um, that kind of eye-rolling, sneery uh, type of response. In the case of Cuba, that never quite happened. So in my pattern, if you want to keep it in in, in my template with the three phases, you would have to say they are permanently between phase two and phase three they are stuck somewhere in between Uh, you get some western socialists who do quite explicitly say cuba isn't socialist i want nothing to do with it don't hold that against me and you get some who say oh but it's not so bad and uh, and yes they have some problems but uh, so that's classic phase two rhetoric where someone would not present it as the shining city upon the hill anymore but would still say ah oh, but they've they've got some good uh, some achievements and the bad stuff oh well we have to see that in context and blame some outside force for that and that's where cuba is and has been since i guess the 70s that uh, there was the there was the initial euphoria uh, around the revolution itself, and when when Che Guevara was still uh, a major figure, when he was not just a, a shirt but uh, an actual politician uh, who was who, who was actively involved. That's when they had their honeymoon period. Yeah, then that cooled down at some point. I can't put put an exact year on it, but. Uh, the fact that they became more similar to the soviet union and the fact that you had lots of refugees arriving in florida uh, that kind of helped that uh, it's a bit difficult to say uh, this is the people's paradise when you are surrounded by refugees from the people's paradise who uh, from by actual people who don't want to live there specifically
0: um, in america i don't i don't know that there are many other well China may be an example, but how many other examples did America receive the refugees and emigrants from rather than rather than Western Europe,
1: for instance, uh, of socialist countries? Yes, in that case, that's true. And I think that's why uh, in the American case, the the honeymoon period also ended uh, earlier. But either way, it never. uh, Well, the honeymoon period ended, but it never quite entered that stage of no real socialism I roll. Uh, how can you mention Cuba? Uh, Cuba is the one example that you can more or less mention in in the presence of socialism. Most of them would admit that it has at least something to do with socialism. It's not uh, so. It's not just a total straw man. So it still has some um, some defenders, and I'm not quite sure why that is. It could just be that uh, it's become. Well, it's partly because it's never been the most atrocious example uh of course it is a police state, but it's not um, it's it's nothing like what uh, what Stalinism was with mass graves and um, and, and mass uh, slave labor camps. So it's one of the milder examples of socialism and there is also the the absorption into pop culture if somebody use uh, fascist symbols on on a t-shirt they would immediately be uh, be ostracized for for that uh whereas if it's uh, if it's a che guevara shirt or some or a cuban flag uh all of that stuff that's just pop culture it's 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 hard to take that too seriously um you sometimes get people on the conservative side who who talk about how appalled they are that somebody has a picture of uh, a t-shirt of che guevara because he's a mass murderer but if i'm honest um i don't feel strongly about the che shirt either way because i associate that mostly with teenagers and therefore i just can't take it totally seriously i may even have had a, a che guevara poster myself back in the day so i would associate that more with my own Sixteen-year-old silly self, mm-hmm. then with some, then put that on the same level as uh, as an, an apologist for some totalitarian regime. So maybe that's why Cuba has sort of escaped that a bit. And, and I don't know
0: how much Cuba differs from other socialist states in terms of what feels like the relevant comparison. You talk about. You know, Cuba is often held up against or especially early on against the preceding Batista regime rather than the longer lived regime before Batista. And and then also the rest of Latin America feels like a relevant comparison, maybe as there as there are more attractive alternatives that are, you know, in the public eye. Cuba will seem it can it can enter phase three or something.
1: Yes, that's uh, one of the big differences. That's uh, that's exactly right. That you had for for many other regimes, you just have the comparison. Um, for North Korea, it's ob- obviously South Korea. That's the counterfactual. For Maoism, it would be Taiwan uh, or Hong Kong, um, places that pros- prospered and developed. Whereas for Cuba, well, firstly, it's an island state, and it's surrounded by a lot of poor countries. So therefore, at least in the seventies, eighties, when there was still, when when Cuba was still more popular than than it is now, it was not implausible to say, uh, well, Cuba is not obviously worse off than many other uh, countries in that region. Uh, it was there were there were just lots of dictatorships in Latin America. There were lots of poor countries, and uh, you could say, okay, it, it's not um, a place where you have freedom of speech and freedom of assembly. But that's true in many of their neighbors too and um while you will not get rich in cuba while uh, you, you won't get um a western type uh, living standard neither do they have extreme poverty and that's something which they you say did have uh, that um a lot of their neighbors didn't so it was initially they they just had they didn't have ambitious counterfactuals. So you could see why somebody would say, well, okay, Cuba is not obviously uniquely bad, and that would have been correct. Now it's a bit different. There are now middle-income countries. Most Latin American countries now are middle-income countries. Uh, It's it's no longer um, the case that Latin America means poverty um, and and underdevelopment. I mean, it it does range from uh, some lower middle incomes to some quite developed ones. I mean, Chile is, is clearly a first world country now. Um, Uruguay is uh, is nowadays a first world country. You get the Costa Ricas, you, you get some success stories there. If you compare Cuba to those, it looks pretty grim. Um, and I'd say that's the more uh, relevant comparison uh, because Cuba was already quite highly developed around the time of the revolution. It's not that they would ever have been like Haiti or Guatemala. Um, that the, the the issues that those other countries um, have or had until recently with very high child mortality, um, low life expectancy. that was even in the 50s, that was not an issue anymore in in Cuba. They already had, by the standards of that uh, of that region, they had uh, fairly high life expectancy. That most people could read and write, so it's not that they were starting from from zero. They were already fairly highly developed and were already improving and would have improved with or without the revolution. But that's something that an economist would know. Somebody who, who looks into the figures would know it's not immediately obvious. So therefore, it's um, I can't blame someone for saying, "Well, okay, Cuba." Um, they're not rich, but are they obviously worse than than, uh, Guatemala or El Salvador? Not so clear. And then East
0: Germany is the other example that doesn't fit the pattern, but in a different way than Cuba.
1: Yes, they never had a honeymoon period in the sense that you had large waves of enthusiastic support. And that's because it was, uh, well, during the Cold War, uh, there was an emphasis on well the, the eastern Bloc was presented as a block as a homogenous block few people would uh, would have known a great deal about the difference between um the soviet union and poland and and east germany and hungary they, they would have just that's mostly the way it's presented in uh, cold war spy thrillers um i just read uh, a, a novel which is set in the cold war and there, there is somebody who who travels to east germany and it is presented as a as a complete Soviet puppet state which I don't think is, is true I don't think it's that's that's really quite how it was but that's how it was seen uh, it, it was just a copy of the of the Soviet Union at a higher uh, level of development since since Germany was uh, was was of course much more highly developed uh, before eastern Germany was, was much more highly developed before it became socialist than, than the Soviet Union was so that they didn't have to build industries from 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 scratch since soviet socialism by that time was already discredited, um, nobody could have realistically claimed that east germany is somehow a fresh start. That's normally what new socialist regimes need, Uh, if they want to be popular with western intellectuals. They need that distance from the previous ones. They need to be able to say, we will not be like that. And that was the case in in Cuba, clearly, because it was a a homegrown revolution. Um, They were later they became allies of the soviets but it's not that they tried actively to replicate the soviet system whereas east germany was clearly oriented towards the, the soviet union so nobody could have said oh, this is a complete fresh start and uh, they will not make the mistakes of the soviets again so uh, and, and well i guess it's also just a place that uh, that doesn't lend itself so easily to Romanticism. Uh, if uh, in the in the case of Cuba, like I said blended a bit, and, and Venezuela like, blended a bit with more general uh, mm-hmm. Western backpacker Latin America romanticism. Whereas uh, an East German city would have just looked li- like a West German city, but uh, grey and and dull and probably quite boring so it didn't have that romanticism
0: do you think it also requires a charismatic leader i don't know if there were any particularly charismatic east german leaders but is that also a common thread in
1: western intellectual excitement yes that usually happens you have to you have mao uh, Ho Chi Minh, Castro, Che Guevara, Chavez had that role for a while. Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua, at least in the 80s, um, not, not now. Uh, here, the, the second uh, installment, uh, interestingly, is not so popular. But that's usually part of it. Uh, and East Germany didn't have that. If you lived there, you would, you would have known the name of the general secretary of the Socialist Party. An outside observer wouldn't have known that. And there was nothing about a particular figure. What they had going for them was that they presented themselves as the anti-fascist Germany. Uh, They said um, that their regime was composed of people who were uh, part of the anti-Nazi resistance. And that was partly true. Some of them were people who were persecuted uh, by the Nazis who had uh, survived in exile or who were even active uh, in the resistance. Um, Erich Honecker who was later the general secretary. He was literally in a, in a Nazi prison for, I think, a decade. So, um, so you, you could say, well, these were people who had made personal sacrifices and who stood for a certain kind of idealism by virtue of their biographies. And they uh, knew how to blend that with the way they presented their regime. Uh, Eastern self-presentation was always that they said. West Germany is a is a quasi fascist state. That's where all the Nazis went. That's the bad Germany. That's where the baddies went. But we're the good guys here. Uh, we are the ones who were part of the of the resistance, and we represent the fresh start. And Marxists also had this particular interpretation that, that they thought fascism was just a more the most extreme form of capitalism. That uh, they had this idea that the Nazis were actually put in power by capitalists who so who felt threatened, and therefore they could, uh, the East German leaders could then say, oh, look, those industrialists, some of whom supported the Nazi regime, they're still there. Look at this person, look at that person. Aren't those familiar names? Um, and they could say, we here, we don't do that because we don't have private industry anymore.
0: It's interesting that East Germany never received much Western support, but you also talk about how it's in terms of all of the examples we have, it's probably about as good as it gets in terms of actual living standards and numbers and lack of serious authority. Like it was an authoritarian police state, but maybe similar to Cuba, it doesn't come anywhere close to the horror stories of Maoism or Stalinism. Uh, And it's actually relatively one of the better
1: examples Yes, of course. It started at a higher level because even though um, Eastern Germany just after the war would have looked completely bombed out, it was actually a lot of the uh, the capital stock, the uh, the infrastructure had survived. It was not that they literally had to build everything from zero. Uh, it was just that a lot of it was unusable because that's um, if you have, let's say, a factory where an important part is missing or where there are no railway tracks leading to that factory. If, if, if that's bombed, uh, then you can't use it for now. And it looks uh, industrial production, industrial output will be abysmally low. It looks as if you're starting from zero again, but, you, but you're not really. You ca- uh, can repair a lot of what you've inherited and... Um, you therefore start with a with a higher level of development. You you start with uh, with a capital stock and uh, advanced technology that the Soviet Union didn't have after the revolution. So um, they, they they were a developed country before and uh, therefore maintained a certain edge. I and mean, I'm I'm glad I grew up on the right side of uh, of the inner German border. But nonetheless, it was not uh, that day that they had starvation or anything. It just meant uh, living standards would be quite spartan.
0: You go through eight or 10 or so examples of socialist states, but your book has obviously had to be limited for length. What are some socialist societies you would have most liked to include a chapter on in your book that you weren't able to?
1: Well, there were. I have a colleague who uh, is interested in, well, African development, uh, mostly present-day development, um, they have uh, an an attempt to build a free trade uh, area now, um, and and he looks at that mainly, but he's also interested in uh, Marxist regimes in Africa, and uh, he asked me after the book came out, why didn't you include, why didn't you have something on Angola and and Mozambique, uh, the the People's Republics, they had a a period of... Was uh, Idi mean socialist? I don't know enough about that. There are sometimes borderline cases. Where you can't clearly say, uh, but he says a lot of those Zimbabwe perhaps would fall into that category. That uh, there were African Marxist regimes that mm. did have Western supporters, not on a, on a massive scale, not on on a scale that that everyone would know about it, but uh, they were nonetheless there. And um, yeah, when when he mentioned that, I thought that's that's a good point. It's just that uh, those were regimes that that. I knew relatively little about, so it would have taken a lot more time to find out. And once you already have about eight examples, uh, adding a ninth or tenth doesn't add that much to the book anymore. There comes a point when the reader says, okay, I get the pattern. I believe you. Uh, can you can can you shut up now? But yeah, if, if that weren't an issue, I, I could have found a lot more examples.
0: I don't know if you've seen the film, The Last King of Scotland. That's why Idi Amin came to mind. It's largely about that, a a particular Western pilgrim who's very taken with his new revolutionary regime. And I don't recall if it's specifically socialist or just a grassroots people's revolution kind of, and his, his personal journey to start second guessing what he's seeing and then ultimately to realize this is not so pretty.
1: Yeah, that sounds familiar. That sounds like that could have made a chapter.
0: Can you say a little bit about where people can find you if they want to see what you're up to, follow you on social media or anything like that?
1: Yes, sure. I'm on Twitter, actively battling the commies on a day to day basis. That is at K underscore ie N I E M I E T Z. And otherwise, I've got plenty of other publications on the, that's on the website of the Institute of Economic Affairs, uh, ia.org.uk. If you click on on research or, or publications that will all come up some of it on socialism some on completely different subjects
0: and are you working on any new projects right now any new books or
1: i've got a paper coming out which is um, well that's a more specifically british topic that's uh, we often have waves of panic moral panics around the national health service um there are uh, recurring conspiracy theories that uh, there's a secret plan to privatize the NHS, and uh, that, there never was such a plan. But uh, people keep saying that, and uh, have been regularly for over 40 years. It just will not go away. So it's it's almost a bit like with socialism that you can find uh, quotes from many years apart that sound very similar. You only have to change a name and, and a date. And uh, it's another idea that just cannot be refuted by experience.
0: Last question. Do you have any books or authors or papers you would recommend that you think are a good complement to
1: your book? That would clearly be, you mentioned the Paul Hollander book. That's my main source for the first three country examples for the Soviet Union, Maoist China, and Cuba. Here's my main source there. So he is well. I think it was first published in 1980. He did this quite quite a while ago. He, he documents. In his case, it's all it's all about what I call the honeymoon phase. He doesn't do the, the phases in the, in the way I do. He goes. Uh, he concentrates on the phases when um, when Western intellectuals are fawning over socialist regimes. And um, it's called Political Pilgrims. That was both a source that I actively used, but also an inspiration uh, that, that showed me. Um, I had some idea of the, of this before, but that showed me this, this is actually bigger than I realized. There's there's a lot going on there.
0: Christian, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation.
0: That was Christian Niemitz, and his book is Socialism, The Failed Idea That Never Dies. You can purchase it on Amazon, and you can also find links to that book, as well as other topics discussed in today's episode in the show notes. If you're enjoying what I do here, please subscribe to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. And please rate and review the show. It's a small thing, but it really helps us grow. So I thank you in advance for doing that. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening.